Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. I'm Patrick Egan, and I'm here with Jason Barney and Colby Atchison. And today we're going to dive into some modern research where we're thinking about the ways in which the mind itself accesses information, the way we process information as, as human beings, as creatures made in the image of God, but also designed in, in very specific ways. We, we can talk about neurology. We, we can think about the ways in which what we're learning, there are processes that can optimize that learning. So as we think about modern science, we want to think about how that modern science is coming into our classroom in the form of little human beings that are growing uh, physically as well as intellectually, spiritually, morally. So Jason, I want to start with you. Um, what are some things that have been on your mind recently as you've been looking at modern research? Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as we think about um, modern research, obviously there are multiple different perspectives on the value of kind of the modern educational movement as a whole. So I think it's important to make a distinction between uh, what's called learning science or the findings from cognitive psychology and uh, the education field in general, which has many different streams growing, going into it, a lot of which we would be very skeptical of uh, here at Educational Renaissance. But I think there's a lot to be said of value in terms of some of the helpful evidence-based findings of um, modern learning science regarding how students learn best. And obviously there are kind of deeper interactions in terms of psychology that we wanna appropriate from within a Christian worldview there as well. Like you're talking about um, Patrick, the, the kind of hearts of students and how, how they, they feel about even their work is, is an important factor that you can't just punt on even if you're a classical educator and have the goals of wisdom and virtue, you should be taking those things in, into account and um, dealing with them. But I think maybe one um, big idea that we could kind of circle around uh, is the idea of desirable difficulties. Desirable difficulties is a phrase I get from the book, Make It Stick, which we've recommended here on the podcast before or in other educational renaissance um, articles or resources, but it's a really great book by two cognitive psychologists and one novelist. So it's uh, well-written so that you can read it and they try and weave in a lot of the principles of the best way to learn something in how they even write the book. Um, but I really am just attracted to this idea of desirable difficulties and how it can be helpful for thinking about all sorts of things. One initial connection that I have in, in my mind is the idea of atmosphere for Charlotte Mason as a one of three tools or instruments of education in the teacher or parent's hands. When she talks about uh, atmosphere in the sixth volume Called, called Toward a Philosophy of Education, Charlotte Mason draws from this vivid image of a plant 
being uh, protected under glass and becoming soft and succulent, uh, kind of withering away and not really growing and developing to its full potential. And then quotes a, a scientist of her day saying that when they put like electric shocks through the plant instead, it kind of actually brightened up and became strong. And so I think that one fallacy of our kind of modern coddle children world is the idea that uh, if something's hard, you have to stop doing it, right? Like it's it's not good to put students through some challenges and, and it's just manifestly not the case that challenges are always bad or difficulty is always bad. I don't know what thoughts you guys have here to interact with this big idea. I appreciate what you're saying, Jason, about desirable difficulties. I read an article recently about the whole learning styles approach um, to education and this idea that we want to um, try to match students and how they are wired to learn, so to speak, with the activities in the classroom. So if you're a kinesthetic learner, let's make sure that there's lots of movement going on. If there's tactile, if you're a tactile learner, let's make sure there's lots of opportunities for you to touch and feel and manipulate objects. If you're auditory, let's make sure that there's a, you can hear well in the classroom, the teacher's voice, that different sounds are being introduced. And uh, I think there's, you know, some value in this approach, but the article that I was reading was proposing that actually to overmatch your style of instruction to the student's alleged learning style actually will truncate the student's learning in these other key areas that we want to shore up. And so I I think a case can be made that at times we want to strategically create that lane for a student to run fast in that might match with their learning style. Um, But I also want to suggest in line with what you're talking about, Jason, with desirable difficulties, that sometimes we want to actually throw a grenade in the middle of the road and and actually give that student a chance to um, to work through an approach to learning that doesn't line up perfectly with their learning style. And so for the student who's perhaps a kinesthetic learner, um, where there's a lot of movement required, let's really press into that auditory for the lesson today. Let's press into reading of the text uh, and so forth. So I'm curious if you guys uh, agree with me here, what you think about this? Definitely. When when I think about Lev Vygotsky and the zone of proximal development, it's, it is this idea that you want to present a child with an appropriate amount of challenge, that if there's no challenge in a task that they're doing, they they become bored, they're not interested in tackling it. If it's too challenging, it will shut them down as well because they'll see, oh, that's something that I can't do, it's impossible to do. So getting the right level of challenge is, is an important aspect of what we're talking about. And Lev Vygotsky, he's early 1900s. So it's like this idea has been around for a while, but I think what Bjorn and others are, are getting at with more recent research is some of the tools available to us at all age levels that create that desirable level of challenge and being able to tinker with that so you can increase or decrease the level of challenge to really create tension where the student is going to learn. And we can broaden it out beyond just learning itself, like 
we can talk about retrieval practice and all of that, but there, there are elements of exercise where, where you could think about the athlete that you might be coaching and what would be the appropriate level of challenge to help that athlete grow in some capacity. But I've often wondered, you know, are there also ways in which this can be applied to spiritual or moral formation as well, where we encounter challenges and recognize that thing you're struggling through is actually part of where you're going to grow in your faith life or in your capacity to be a better human being. So I think this whole idea of desirable difficulties, it just has so much promise in so many different directions of life and learning. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about too recently, Patrick, is just, it seems like God has created this world uh, in such a way that we need the the difficulties of life. We need the challenges to grow and develop and that that's written into experience in so many different ways. And so, you know, we, we go through trials as Christians and that's for the testing and proving of our faith. And so we know that to be the case, but then to think about like the ways that that's written into the created order. And, you know, I want to develop some of the gold standards from learning science of how the best learning occurs. And it's counterintuitive. It's not how, uh, if you will, modern educators have primarily been going about things or how students are primarily inclined to go about them. So you mentioned retrieval practice already. The idea here is that it's when you try to recall from memory with without a clear prompt that you're really going to be developing that memory. It's it's hard. It's difficult to get there. But when you do it that way, that's when you're sealing something in for long-term memory. And narration, of course, is a prime example of that broader category. It's difficult to narrate, but it's good. It helps you really develop. And there, there can be, and there is often a, a great joy to it, But there's never that point where as you're jumping in and you were called upon to narrate as a student, there isn't a little bit of that tension and push to get past the initial impediment and start telling as much as you can, right? There's always going to be that challenge factor to something like narration. And it's just the fact that if you give a student a worksheet with fill in blanks to finish the sentences of various things from the content that you've given, right? You use a sort of worksheet approach rather than a narration approach. That's a little bit of retrieval practice. And there might be a little bit of difficulty associated with that, but it's just not going to have the same long-term learning effect as the fuller, more developed, where, where the student has to provide everything for it. And so that's, I think the danger is that like in making our modern systems for education, we too easily, uh, I guess, you know, grease the pathway so that students are just slipping along into the right answer. But what happens there is you actually create illusions of knowing as the authors of Make It Stick talk about. And another one of those that can be contrasted with retrieval practice, for instance, is, is when a student rereads a text multiple times. And it's so funny to think about how Charlotte Mason had even 
talked about. Don't have them reread the text. Just one reading must be insist on because this the the mind has this desultory habit of wanting just to rely on the next reading and the next reading and the next reading. But but we see this all the time, right, with students today, whether it's in high school or college, that'll study by just rereading. And then they, they feel so familiar with the material. You can feel familiar with it and think that you know, and then you get to that actual test or exam and you find out then through your grade that you did not know the material as well as you thought you did. And so that's the that's one of the big findings right there that, again, supports retrieval practice rather than just rereading or highlighting, you know, looking over your highlights and your notes, not as effective as trying to fully recall something from your memory. Sign up for the Educational Renaissance newsletter. Stay connected to the EdRen community to deepen your understanding of education and hone your craft as a teacher. The Educational Renaissance newsletter comes out every Saturday morning sharing each new blog post. Subscribers also get advance notice on special offers. We promise not to fill up your email with endless advertisements. Become part of the Educational Renaissance community. Subscribe today at educationalrenaissance.com. So one of the things that immediately comes to mind is what does this look like in the daily life of a classroom? You know, how do we apply retrieval practice? How do we encounter or, or even plan for desirable difficulties in different subjects? And there are a bunch of questions that probably stem from even just a, a consideration of the daily life of, say, a fifth grade or a kindergarten or a high school class, all that are going to bring different levels of energy to the task, uh, motivation to the task of learning. Any thoughts on what this might look like? Well, I would say very practically, it begins with the beginning of your lesson. So uh, it's been a temptation for me over the years as a teacher, as I start a new lesson, say a history lesson or a logic lesson, to begin by myself recapping the previous day's lesson um, by sort of synthesizing what we've been learning all year to really try to set up the students well mentally for the lesson we're about to tackle. And I think going off of this vein of desirable difficulties and even this idea of active recall, what if teachers, instead of doing that synthesizing work themselves, put it on the students? So something we do at the, at the school where I work is we actually ask the students questions at the beginning of the lesson. We get them retrieving the knowledge they learned on the day previous. Um, as opposed to me doing that, right? So if we are studying the Napoleonic Wars and we just studied a particular battle yesterday, I, as the teacher, am tempting to share my knowledge about what we learned. But instead, why don't I call on a student and say, hey, what did we learn yesterday? Tell me some of the details about the battle that we studied. Uh, could You could also apply this to vocab words. Hey, we encountered uh, these three vocab words yesterday start calling on students, hey, what do you remember about this vocab word? What does it mean? Use it in a sentence for us. That way we're getting the students talking, them doing the cognizing, the retrieving, as opposed to me having all the fun as the teacher. And what that's doing, Colby, as well, is it's actually another kind of form of those desirable difficulties, which is spaced retrieval, too. So 
they're they're doing this sort of spaced practice and they've just started to forget kind of enough. And then when you call on them to recall, it creates that again desirable difficulty moment where you know they're really going to develop that memory and that knowledge and kind of wire in a complex network so that they have that knowledge for the long term. And so it's funny, but um, in the book, Make It Stick, they say you want to wait long enough so that it's hard. You want to wait with your spaced practice or uh, retrieval enough so that there's been enough forgetting that's occurred so that uh, it will actually be difficult enough that you're sending the right signals again to the brain to like devote resources to saving this. And now, of course, if you wait like three months and they don't remember anything at all, that's not going to be effective. So that's an important kind of caveat to put in there that it's uh, it has to still be successful. It has to be like uh, like Patrick said, kind of a, in a zone of proximal development where you've forgotten just enough, but not too much. And then you're asked to recall something again. And as a group, you're able to successfully recall enough. Now, even if you don't, like the students can't recall, but they're asked to try to recall, and then the teacher has to provide it, the brains of the students are in that moment kind of primed to take it in again and actually understand or remember it better later. So that is important. So it, it is okay for them to fail sometimes as long as you help correct or um, improve the memory from it, because then you've kind of created almost the desire, the need, the lack for the right knowledge um, that, again, they're trying to recall. So that's a good kind of other learning science example of this desirable difficulties principle. We've got retrieval practice on the table and then space practice, which got us kind of really in the weeds of what happens on a day-to-day basis. One of the most recognizable examples of retrieval practice would be something like flashcards. And in language learning, we're very familiar with that, but flashcards can be applied to all kinds of different areas where you need to know discrete pieces of information. And this whole idea of desirable difficulty, it's not just a one concept idea. You can stack multiple items in this stack of difficulties or or ensure there's some difficulty, even though the task might be relatively easy. So flipping a flashcard, it's not a very difficult thing. Learning one flashcard, not a very difficult thing. But the process of seeing one side and and retrieving from my mind what's on the other, that's a fundamentally difficult thing. That's retrieval practice. And so as we think about creating desirable difficulty, there are different levers you can pull. For instance, the nature of the terms we're learning. You know, verbs are just a little bit harder than nouns to learn. Adverbs are just that much harder. And so you can think about what is the nature of the things that we're learning. Another way you can increase difficulty is reversing the cards. Okay, now you're starting with the English side and you're going to learn the foreign language side. Or you can say, we're going to increase the number of cards we're learning so that you feel like, oh, I've got a good handle on these 10. Well, what if I double it to 20? You're creating a new kind of difficulty that the student encounters. And so you can always be adjusting the nature of the challenge they're receiving. And that's just one example. 
in math, one of the things you said, Jason, reminded me of this, that uh, I teach geometry. And a lot of times my students are looking at me like little baby birds, like, did I get the right answer? And they want me to validate their right answer. And there's this concept of delayed feedback. If I step in and go, oh, that's right, that's right, that's right, then I'm actually reinforcing the idea that the only way to validate that I've got a correct answer is when the teacher has affirmed that. And so by delaying my response, how do you know that you've produced a right answer is difficult. That's challenging, but it actually equips the student to know I've got a right answer. I'm increasing my confidence in what I know and the processes I'm using to create right answers. And it's so frustrating for them when they want that answer from me and I don't give it. There's a, there's a reason why we're strengthening the processes. We're strengthening the mathematical thinking so that you can know I've produced a right answer. Now, obviously there's a point at which you, you have to give the correct answer, especially if, if we're just learning a new concept and it's hard to get that answer. There's lots of different ways that you can approach thinking about the, these desirable difficulties. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. So we've got retrieval practice, spaced practice, and uh, now delayed feedback as examples of desirable difficulties. Colby, I know you've written before on mixed practice. This is another one that's kind of loved and hated in one sense by students, because often when you're experiencing mixed practice, it does not feel so good. Tell us about mixed practice. Yeah, so mixed practice is, is this idea that um, you want to shake it up when you are having your students work on a particular skill or exercise when it comes to the particular concept that they're trying to master or the skill they're trying to hone. So you can imagine in a pre-algebra class, you're learning how to, say, add fractions, right? And you might think, well, let's give them 10 problems in a row of adding fractions. Uh, that's something that we might call massed practice, right? We're, we're massing together, so to speak, the same exact kind of problem. And uh, there can be some value in this, especially if you're learning the concept, you know, at the beginning, right? Like, well, let's get several, uh, several reps in a row here of how to add fractions. But when it comes to this topic of desirable difficulties, actually what you want to do after you've introduced the topic and given them a few reps is mix it up a little bit so you might 
start with a problem about adding fractions, then you might jump over to a long division problem or adding and subtracting negatives. Uh, in other words, you want to throw a lot of different challenges at the students. Um, and by mixing it up, it's uh, actually activating all the different parts of your brain and the synapses that you've been working to strengthen in a way that overall is going to lead the student to be a a stronger thinking, a thinker. And we might even say a, a, a more um, flexible thinker, able to think on their feet, to, to sort of uh, um, be on their toes, so to speak, intellectually, as these different challenges go towards them. So that would be the idea of mixed practice. And it's crazy how much, you know, learning you think you experience on mass practice that just goes away in a couple of days. Like it feels really good when you do mixed practice, whether it's like, you know, you're doing baseball and you're getting a bunch of fastballs and you just get really good at hitting those fastballs. But if uh, you know, suddenly you're in a real life baseball situation and it could be a change change up or a slow ball or a fastball like you're done. Like you, you, you haven't improved at all. If you just practiced fastballs, you only get better <laughs> if you um, are dealing with any of the three at any point. And so it's like the mixed practice, though, when you're doing it that way, it doesn't feel like you're getting better at all. It might even feel like you're getting worse. And I know we've probably all experienced this from students experience, like how parents are talking that even in math, often when you have the mixed practice scenario, uh, students will perform more poorly initially on those problem sets, those tests. But what the research seems to show is that over the long haul, they're getting a whole lot better. And so there's this illusion there of what feels good right? It, what feels even like I'm learning a lot isn't always nearly so helpful. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading this book, Range, which I think has a lot of implications um, for classical education in particular. I, I think the subtitle of Range is why generalists triumph in a specialized world. And one of the, the findings that kind of he noted was that even in a college setting, when students rate their professors, you know, that's often used to determine which professors are best. Often students will rate as best, not the professors in which they were shown to actually have learned the most over several years. So, so there's an interesting kind of like um, catch 22 with getting student feedback or even Parent feedback is just like the fact that it's not always accurate. And this is because of desirable difficulties. You know, we as human beings do not have the best kind of premium in our feelings and emotional responses to things on what's best for us or what develops us the most or whether we're learning. There are times I, I'm pretty sure where the student has really felt, whether it's in math or something else, that they weren't learning well. And that a teacher wasn't doing the best thing for them or doing their job because they were just asking the question and not telling things in an interesting or entertaining way to the student when actually they are learning a whole lot. And, and the, the way that the teacher's doing it, which relies on the students getting those great types of practice, is being incredibly effective. 
Um, but again, that that's not necessarily going to translate to the student experience. And so this, uh, again, it's it's just just like us as human beings too, right? We we want to eat this type of food. We don't want to exercise. We we don't, you know, like there's there's all sorts of things in terms of our natural desires that aren't necessarily geared towards what's best for us. And the same is true in learning. Imagine being able to take your classroom or school to the next level. Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you to do just that. Educational Renaissance Books puts the tools into your hands so that you can become the master teacher God has called you to be. Learn more about our latest book by Jason Barney, A Short History of Narration, available now through our website or at Amazon.com. I think there's something to not just lesson planning with a view to creating exercises that are going to bring out this desirable difficulty. There's also the idea of how do we optimize our day, the energy that a student brings to be able to encounter challenge. Because if you're starting in the morning, leaving in the afternoon, you've got these peaks and troughs of energy that you have to manage. Or even in a 30 to 40 minute session, I've got different levels of energy that students are bringing. So part of the advice to teachers is, hey, when you're lesson planning, apply this whole idea of desirable difficulty to your lesson planning. What are the kinds of exercises that are really going to create challenge in your classroom? Another idea for lesson planning then is also how do I mix my practice, space my practice in such a way that I can actually have my students ride these peaks and troughs of their energy so that I have up moments and down moments where we are energized to encounter challenge. And then there's a moment of rest. And what's interesting is this mixed practice idea is such that one of the best ways to create rest is actually to do a different exercise. So we do this thing over here that might be more intense on the memory work thing or discrete facts. And then we go over here and we're going to write on something, different kind of challenge, but now all of that energy expenditure over here is shifted to a different kind of energy over here. Or maybe there's a partner discussion thing that again has an element of challenge because I'm I'm having to share ideas with a partner, but there's a different kind of energy flow that comes from that. So a wise teacher learns to read that class and know how long can I get challenge out of this particular kind of exercise? When do I need to start shifting things? Okay, everybody up out of your seats and let's you know move over here, different kind of energy, and then we're going to go back to a certain type of exercise. So as you're designing a week, a class, uh, a whole school year, you're thinking about, well, how can I really optimize the kind of energy it's going to take to encounter difficulties? I really appreciate your comment, Patrick, about the wisdom that it takes for a teacher to craft the kind of lesson plans you're describing. Really, this whole topic reminds me that teaching truly is a craft that takes time and practice and effort to grow into mastery, as well as the support of a coach or a principal or someone who can really come alongside teachers with experience and 
and speak uh, words of insight and encouragement and of wisdom into this craft. So I think of, you know, what you just said about lesson planning and how much wisdom has to go into that. Um, and then I think about what we've been talking about with this idea of knowledge illusion from make it stick, where we we feel like we we know something, we have this illusion in our minds, but then when it comes to the actual retrieval, we find out, oh, I didn't know this as well as I thought I did. And so again, it takes wisdom there for the teacher as he or she is leading their students to be able to identify, do we have real knowledge here of the topic or is there just mere illusion going on here? Did this set of masked practice where we did 10 of the same problems in a row actually show me that they they know or is this a short-term mastery that will be forgotten given the nature of masked practice? So anyway, just so much wisdom is required in all of this. Um, I, I did want to ask you guys just briefly about the topic of note-taking and whether um, you think that note-taking falls within the realm of desirable difficulty or if note-taking would fall into a different category that may or may not be helpful. Obviously, um, for non-educators to see a bunch of students scribbling down notes in a lecture um, can potentially look rigorous and look difficult, and it might be to some extent, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, note-taking is is really interesting. So there are different kinds of note-taking, right? And some of it could be rather passive, not very challenging. I, I remember having a teacher where I, I literally had to copy down what was on the board, and it wasn't you didn't learn much through that. There's a different kind of note-taking where it is essentially a written form of narration where you're taking now what, what was learned and encapsulating that in a set of notes. But there's the, a very similar kind of thing to, say, a written narration would be what's called the Feynman technique. And this is based on the whole idea of one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it. And if I have nobody around to teach to, teaching it to my notebook is a really good method. And so that, that has like that spaced practice kind of idea. So when is the optimal time to take notes? It might not be right at this moment. As I'm giving this lecture and I've got people dutifully taking notes, that might not be the optimized way of learning. It could be listen attentively as we read this thing or as we process or, or whatnot, then go take notes at home. And what do you learn, but also what do you remember or forget or questions do you have so that you're coming back the next day with a really productive set of notes? The, so those are some of my initial thoughts of how to say, okay, there's something valid about notes, but we can connect it to this desirable difficulties idea to say, how can notes themselves be part of this tool of creating challenge that retrieves knowledge, that has them practicing in these ways? Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I have a couple thoughts. One, I read a study some years back about uh, college students taking notes, and they determined that when students took notes on a laptop, and typed out their notes, they remembered incredibly less than those who took notes by hand. I remember the researchers saying that they thought this was because, in fact, um, those college students could type much quicker than they could write by hand, 
And so they were trying to get down verbatim most of what their professors said. And the fact of doing that overloaded their, their working memory such that they didn't have time to really consolidate those memories and store them. They had gotten down a lot of words on their laptop, uh, but they didn't really understand what had been said. And they couldn't really remember nearly so much as those who wrote much less because they, they couldn't write fast enough on their analog format, but had to then choose what they were going to write and think through the nature of the material they were hearing of the, of the instruction they were getting and make those sorts of choices about what were big ideas and what were small. And so I think we could even go further than that to say that any type of note-taking that's interactive, that involves the student having to digest what's being shared and then make judgments about, you know, what's higher or lower. So I, I would recommend if we're if we're trying to train students in note taking because we think it's valuable that we train them in a method like you're talking about, Patrick, or of, of outlining where they have to um, discern as they're listening what are the broader big picture ideas and then what fits under that as sub points and maybe even sub details under that. And they get down those things and, and kind of take it in in that way. Of course, um, I also remember uh, as I did work on kind of the history of narration, Erasmus says that note-taking is a crutch and he recommends a, a kind of written narration of a teacher's lecture after he's given it as a regular type of assignment um, that should be done for older students kind of in what we'd call maybe a secondary or upper school age range going on into college and and he actually says note taking you, you should do when students are younger but then as they get older they should not need to take notes anymore which is kind of the backwards of the way we think about it i, I think his perspective is worth considering Note-taking is really valuable, but also the memory uh, itself and being able to hold on to the the whole length of content that you've heard is actually a, a skill, a, a habit that can be developed over time. And potentially, note-taking would not necessarily be needed for our oldest scholars who have gone through a process like we espouse here in Educational Renaissance, where, where they're narrating from great books and they're able then to narrate from a lecture after the fact, that is to take the whole whole of it, as you're saying, Patrick, and be able to maybe, you know, take their notes after the fact, write it after the fact, instead of while they're hearing. They can just remember all of what they heard, even in a 30 to 40 minute lecture, maybe not every single detail, but but a lot. This is really helpful. And just for those listening in on this conversation about note taking, I hope what you can take away uh, as you're taking notes on this uh, podcast, just kidding, ha <laughs> ha. Note taking can be done well, but not all note taking is created equal. So I think, again, going on the topic of illusions and real learning, you can look at a notebook of notes that a child has and be like, wow, look at all the learning they've done this semester. Look at all these notes. The real test is, let's close the notebook and ask them, so tell me about such and such. And if they can, if they can tell you, they really know it. 
But if not, then that notebook might be serving a different purpose than what you thought. So I just wanted to, to kind of wrap up this topic of note-taking with that thought. I do think that note-taking can at minimum help build a weak habit of attention. So if a student's really struggling to attend in class, it can be helpful to have them jot down in this outline form that's being described here, some notes, at least to build up that habit of attention. Well, we've been talking about a lot of insights we've gained from modern research, particularly having to do with retrieval practice and and particularly this idea of desirable difficulties. And maybe this has inspired you to deepen your learning of your craft of teaching. And at Educational Renaissance, we have a ton of resources for you. We've written on retrieval practice. We have our Educational Renaissance bookstore where you can find the book, Make It Stick, that has a lot of teaching on retrieval practice, mixed practice, space practice, and all of that. That could be a great tool for teacher training, of taking your whole faculty along this journey of designing desirable difficulties in your school. We have other resources through our webinars. Uh, You can find those at our webinar page. And Jason Barney has also written on narration, which is a great retrieval practice, a great desirable difficulty to apply in your classroom. And once again, you can find that at our website, Educational Renaissance. Well, we thank you for listening. We think so highly of what teachers, administrators are doing in this educational renewal movement. If you've liked what you have heard on this podcast, we ask you to share it with a friend or a colleague. That's going to help us keep this renaissance spreading. Have a great day. Bye-bye.